just to fill in a little bit, my first experience of South Africa was in uh, 1972 to 3 when I was still a medical student. I had my place at Oxford to read history, but I wanted to read medicine in order to work somewhere in Africa. I finished up visiting South Africa at that time, and what impressed me was, at the height of apartheid, the alternative community that I found in South Africa that had made contact with each other and made friends with each other, and in fact that led to my doctorate and my book on friendship. Um, I thought that it was very important for Southern, Central and East Africa that the South African problem should be sorted out. And uh, that was why I went to join this group of people who had impressed me so much, living something different within apartheid South Africa. And many of them, of course, were strong church members, also a scattering of um, liberal Jewish people and um, communists, and lots and lots of black people of all sorts of persuasions. I went back, therefore, to work as a doctor, and I worked for seven years in the hospital that serves Soweto. It's a big teaching hospital. During that time, the Soweto uprising happened. I had many friends in Soweto, and I saw that situation from many different points of view. I then turned into a theologian, as I always wanted to be ordained if possible, and things were moving that way, so I was back in Oxford in the 80s, and I did my doctorate on um, friendship as a way of interpreting Christian love down the ages. And then I went back to work in the Diocese of Johannesburg, and I had a diocesan job in spirituality and theological education, which allowed me a roving brief. I concentrated on the townships, because that was the scene I knew. And Nelson Mandela had just been released. Violence was rising, and then the, the peace accord was signed, and I started working on the peace committees. I then came to be chaplain and tutor in theology here in Oxford, and I kept contact with South Africa. I have a flat in Johannesburg. And I'm working on that at the moment. When asked to give this paper, I thought first of arranging it thematically, for putting down lists of issues and what are rather inelegantly called at the moment the practices of just peacemaking, and then mapping it onto South African examples. But I finished up thinking that the best way to approach this for uh, an audience that may not know South Africa well in any case is simply to give an historical account of South Africa and see how those conflicts and responses to them emerge from the history. So that's what you're going to get right now, the easy, the easy bit. <coughs> I'll start with some statistics. Uh, South Africa now has a population of about 50 million. It was between 40 and 50 in the period we're talking about, um, of the, uh, the end of the conflict. It's made up of the majority of about 40 million black African, four and a half million white and four and a half million coloured, that's mixed race and 1.3 million Indian. That's the 2001 census. There are a scattering of others, um, Chinese and so on. In the 2001 census, 79.7%, almost 80, reported a Christian affiliation. And a large proportion of those will actually be practicing in some way. 
There are 1.5% Muslim, 1.3% Hindu, and 0.2% Jewish, or 15% reported no affiliation, and 2.3% said they were other. This story is therefore essentially about Christianity in South Africa and the differences, the conflicts, and the resolution of conflicts within that broad Christian community. Christianity in South Africa is itself diverse. It includes all racial groups, with about 25% of the population belonging to the large <coughs> mainstream churches, that is, Catholic, Methodist, Dutch Reformed, and Anglican, just under 20% to African independent churches, which have been going for a century or more, and keep splitting off and forming new ones, and 36% to other churches, large charismatic <coughs> churches and so on. Honourable mention is due to the tiny band of Quakers, one of whom pioneered conflict resolution as an academic discipline at the University of Cape Town. So history has given South Africa a complex demography, the rainbow nation. How did all these people get there and what religious ideas came with them? Hominids, of whose religious ideas one knows little, lived in South Africa two or three million years ago. The dating is a little vague still. And then from at least 20,000, probably much longer ago, it was home to the San or Bushmen, the Stone Age hunter-gatherers whose rock art is to be found right across the subcontinent, and to the related Khoi, cattle-herding pastoralists who were dubbed Hottentots by the Dutch settlers who found them at the Cape. So they are the primitive uh, population of southern Africa. During the first millennium of our era, the Bantu peoples, and that simply means the people, Bantu, spread down from the north, developing various tribes and language groups, Zulu and Tulsa, whose cliques come from the San people, intermarriage and picking up the cliques, the Swazi, Ndebele, Sutu, Swana, Venda and Shangan. The Bantu worked iron and were settled farmers. They took over in the north and east of South Africa, displacing the sun. Bantu traditional religions broadly consist in belief in the intimate and demanding presence of the ancestral spirits, <coughs> combined with a sense that there are spiritual powers inherent in all natural objects and phenomena. Belief in a supreme creator god of the sky is also present. Diviners, sangomas, witch doctors, mediate between the spirit and human worlds. Group loyalty and reliance on family and neighbours have been and continue to be very strong. On the positive side, this manifests itself as Ubuntu, human respect, unity, warmth, hospitality. On the negative side, it can manifest as suspicion of individual difference, animosity between groups, and dehumanisation of the other. Frequently, in the situation of ethnic conflict in the townships, one heard an appeal to the Christian principle of unity as brothers and sisters in Christ, children of the same God, who should love one another. Only 0.3 of the population in the 2001 census reported affiliation only to traditional religion. But among Christians, traditional and Christian beliefs and practices are often still to be found overlapping. 
The written history of South Africa begins with the search by European explorers for a sea route to India and the Far East. So in 1488, Bartholomew Diaz rounded the Cape, landed briefly at Mossel Bay and again in the Eastern Cape, so pioneering the route that was taken all the way to India by Vasco da Gama in 1497. Francis Drake sailed past in 1580, and the diary of his voyage describes the Cape. I'm sorry I haven't a picture, I didn't have time to make a PowerPoint, but imagine Table Mountain. A most stately thing, and the fairest Cape we saw in the whole circumference of the Earth. So the first Europeans to settle came to the Cape in 1652. A Dutch party led by Jan van Riebeck sent by the Dutch East India Company to plant a vegetable garden to supply ships trading with Indonesia. Shortly afterwards, French Huguenot refugees arrived. Jacques, perhaps your ancestors? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and later German Lutherans. And these three were the ancestors of the Afrikaners. The Cape Colony expanded displaced or absorbed the Khoi, and imported slaves from all around the Indian Ocean, who became the coloured people, the mixed-race, Afrikaans-speaking population of the Cape. One small segment of the slave population were the Indonesian Muslims, who maintained their separate existence and became the Cape Malays, and South African cuisine owes them a great deal. The British arrived during the Napoleonic Wars, taking the Cape temporarily in 1795 and then permanently from 1806. English settlers, mainly Methodists and nonconformists, then arrived, both in the Western and Eastern Cape. In 1828, under missionary influence, all free persons, irrespective of race, were given equal civil rights in Cape Colony. And this involved a, a franchise based on property ownership. Um, Jumping ahead a little bit, in 1894, under Cecil Rhodes, I think, at that time, the um, franchise was based on owning property worth £25. It was raised, because too many blacks were owning £25, was raised to £75. Um, pressures tend to make the, the dominant group um, try to begin to protect themselves. Those Afrikaners who objected to British rule and to the subsequent abolition of slavery in British territories in the 1830s trekked inland to form their own new republics up in the Transvaal of the Orange Free State. These movements of white settlers in the 19th century led to violent clashes with the Bantu population. Notably for our theme, on the 16th of December 1838, a war party of 470 Afrikaner trekkers won a victory against Zulu forces numbering about 10,000 at what became known as Blood River in Natal. The key Afrikaner tactic was to form their trek wagons into a defensive circle, a lager. Before the battle, a vow was made to God that if they were victorious, they would build a church and hand down the memory of that day to their descendants. This went into folklore as an exodus moment. The victory on the Day of the Covenant, as it came to be called, was a formative symbol for Afrikaner self-understanding. They were a chosen race under special divine protection with a mission to rule the land. 
and the defensive circle of wagons passed into metaphor as the lager mentality. In his recent memoir, the former Nationalist Cabinet Minister Leon Vessels recalls, as a child I often listened to adults, based on sermons they had listened to in the Dutch Reformed Church, saying that we were the modern Israel. We were called to bring Christianity to dark Africa. God will not fail us. Like Israel of yore, we would overcome. And apartheid could be justified on biblical grounds. Note the immediate association between Africana exceptionalism and apartheid. This was Africana folk religion, in which Old Testament themes of ethno-religious purity had the upper hand, and not the inclusive themes of the New Testament, though the New Testament should control Christian interpretation of the whole Bible. By the end of the 19th century, the whole of modern South Africa was under British or Africana rule, with Lesotho, Swaziland and Botswana escaping by becoming protectorates. A very short-lived Fortreca Republic of Natalia on the coast was taken over by the British in 1843 to form the colony of Natal. And there, the development of sugarcane plantations brought an influx <coughs> of Indian indentured labourers who were Muslim and Hindu and some Christian. I'm going to um, digress slightly now on Gandhi in South Africa, because although um, Gandhi was not a great influence in South Africa, though he was to some extent, South Africa had a considerable effect on Gandhi, and that may be interesting for him. It was there that he became a leader and developed his philosophy and method. Mohandas Gandhi, born in 1869, was a Hindu from Gujarat in India. <coughs> he studied law in London, where he also first read the Hindu classic, the Bhagavad Gita, which he took to be an allegory of man's higher impulses struggling against evil, and began to develop a network of white Christian friends. In 1893, Gandhi was asked to take a case in Pretoria. Heading up country, and used to be being treated as a human being, he was conscientized by being thrown off the train in Peter Maritzburg in May 1893 for refusing to move from a first, and he had a first-class ticket, to a third-class carriage. It was not at that time a legal but a social requirement that non-whites should travel third-class. Gandhi stayed in South Africa to campaign against the curtailment of voting rights for Indians in Natal, founding the Natal Indian Congress in 1894. Then came the Boer Wars, prompted not by religion, but by diamonds, gold, land, competition between Britain, Germany and Portugal, and the ambitions of Cecil Rhodes. The final outcome was the Union of South Africa, constituted in 1910 as a self-governing dominion within the British Empire. Politically, the war and the union brought no advances for the black population, advances for which their leaders and others had hoped. Instead, their fortunes went into reverse. A severe blow was dealt by the 1913 Land Act, reserving 93% of the land for white ownership. You see what that does to voting rights. It was later revised to 87% for whites. Meanwhile, in 1903, Gandhi had formed the Transvaal British Indian Association, and in 1907 he developed his non-violent methodology, Satyagraha, Truth Force, 
or nonviolent civil disobedience in the Transvaal, where the Indian population were being required to register for passes. The blacks, of course, were forced to register for passes and carried them right up to the end of apartheid. Um, but apartheid made it much worse for them. Gandhi and many others were imprisoned, but the campaign was successful. The Indian Registration Act was repealed. One of Gandhi's co-workers was the Anglican priest Charlie Andrews. Cambridge educated, formed as a Christian socialist in a London slum parish, who became a missionary teacher in Delhi, then heard of Gandhi and came to join him in South Africa. And in 1915, persuaded in part by Andrews, Gandhi returned to India after 22 formative years in South Africa. Gandhi's work helped inspire the founding in 1912 of the South African Native National Congress, which altered its name to the ANC, African National Congress, in 1923, and was always, in principle, multiracial. Its founding took place at the Vyhook Wesleyan Church in Bloemfontein. It pursued an entirely non-violent campaign, pleading in South Africa and in London for the rights of the black population. Its first president was the scholar John Dube, educated by missionaries and at Oberlin College in Ohio. Dube's father was a hereditary Zulu chief and one of the first black pastors of the American Zulu mission. And it's to the story of settlers and missionaries and the Christian theological history of South Africa that we now turn. The Christianity had come to South Africa in 1652 in Calvinist Protestant form. The Dutch and the French Huguenots were part of the Dutch Reformed Church, which at first was ruled from Holland, and was the established church of the colony. Roman Catholic practice was forbidden. The Lutheranism of the early German settlers was tolerated, though the first Lutheran church was only built in 1779. A few Khoi were baptised, and this made intermarriage possible, although it was rare. Serious missionary work among the Khoi who were by then close to extinction, was begun in 1738 by a Moravian, George Schmidt, in the lovely setting of what became known as Gnadendal, the Valley of Grace, in the Revere Sonderend Mountains, 90 miles east of Cape Town. Schmidt taught the Khoi to read and write, but his teaching and his practice, based on Moravian convictions about the universality of grace and the unity of all in Christ, was seen as a threat to the social life of the settler community. In 1742, he baptised five koi. The Council of Policy of the Dutch East India Company forbade him to baptise more, giving the excuse that he was a layman, that the real problem lay in uncertainty as to whether Christian natives should be accorded rights of citizenship. Schmidt left in 1844 to be ordained. He never returned, but... Later, in 1792, the mission was revived and prospered. Early in 1995, Nelson Mandela renamed the presidential residence in Cape Town, and the name he chose was Gnadendal. And in that year, too, he made a visit to that original mission. This conflict between settler church and mission church became a dominant issue during the 19th century. In the British period, from 1806, Protestant and Catholic missionaries began arriving in large numbers from Europe and America. 
They faced settlers who objected, for example, that Christian natives did not make such good servants as wild ones. <laughs> John de Grouchy, and this is his book, extremely useful book, The Church Struggle in South Africa. It's a complete history of all of this. Writing at the height of the anti-apartheid struggle in 1979, says this tension between church and mission played a crucial role in the social history of South Africa. It provides one of the clues for understanding the struggle of the church for faithfulness, that is, the church's struggle for faithfulness to Christ and the gospel, and relevance today. Central to this tension was the Dutch Reformed Church. After the British takeover, the DRC in South Africa became independent of Holland in 1824, so from now on it was governed locally by its own synod. Scottish Presbyterian ministers joined its ranks of clergy, and some parts of it were strongly influenced by the enthusiastic evangelical piety of the preacher and writer Andrew Murray, the most notable of these ministers, born in South Africa in 1828 and educated in Scotland and Holland. Widespread DRC missionary work among other races began with the advent of these new ministers. The DRC set up its own theological school at Stellenbosch in 1859, a school that has been notable both as a site of conservative thinking and then increasingly in the 20th century as a nest of more liberal theologians within the DRC. The Calvinist theology of the DRC was influenced in the 19th century by the neo-Calvinism of Abraham Kuyper. One doesn't hear much about Kuyper, but uh, the, this, well, the technical stuff is, uh, feeds into the way that uh, the DRC thought, so there's a mention of, of it. He was a Dutch church minister, politician, and theorist who operated in the later part of the 19th century. <coughs> Kuyper insisted on the immediate action of God's common grace, as he called it, as opposed to his particular or saving grace, in all spheres of human life. Common grace, he taught, is built into the structures of creation, so God operates directly in all spheres of social and civil life, in education, in art, in business, in family life, in worship, and that's what the church does, and national life. Thus, society, and it's assumed to be Christian society, is one whole under God. But within it there exist autonomous spheres, each of which has sovereignty over its own affairs under God. Somewhat similar is Luther's teaching on the four separate domains of the family, the state, work of the church, and his doctrine of the two kingdoms of state and church, which um, for many uh, explains to some degree the hesitations of the churches in Germany, uh, influenced by that kind of thinking, to make a proper stand against Hitler and the rise of the confessing church which decided to obey God rather than man. Church and state, therefore, in this way of thinking, should be separated, but this should not be confused with an argument for secularisation. Both the worshipping and the political spheres of society were to be Christian. Nor was it intended to be an argument for subordination or racism, rather it was intended as an argument for equality. But in practice, Kaper not only helped produce what in Holland became the pillarisation of society into separate denominational realms, but in, in South Africa his influence provided a theoretical basis for a Christian nationalism in which the state was an autonomous entity beside the church. Such a separation theory allows for the continued prophetic, prophetic role of the church vis-à-vis -vis the political sphere, but it obviously runs the danger that the state will insist on its autonomy, 
while practicing a debased Christianity and closing its ears to the prophets, and that the church may find it easier, if not entirely comfortable, to acquiesce in abrogation of its prophetic role. Caper led an anti-modernist secession from the Dutch Reformed Church in Holland, which had its counterpart in South Africa, the Hereformia de Kerk, or Dopper Church, whose intellectual centre came to be in Potchefstroom. His ideas influenced Afrikanerdom, both through the Doppers, who provided some major political leaders in the left of the Klaipeder, and the larger Dutch Reformed Church. They go some way to explaining how apartheid, explained as intending the separate development of each race in its own sphere, could have been thought entirely respectable and indeed desirable. How did the racial thinking of the DRC develop? In the early days at the Cape, intermarriage between white settlers and baptised natives was tolerated, although unusual, and the DRC explicitly opposed racial separation in church. The 1829 Synod ruled that Holy Communion was to be administered, quote, simultaneously to all members without distinction of colour or origin, because this was an, un, quote again, an unshakable principle based on the infallible word of God. Later synods continued to affirm that race must not determine church practice. But as the numbers of black converts increased, many being servants, if not slaves, Social pressures brought the church to a tipping point. And here I'm going to quote from de Bruchy. By 1857, the synod had to change its stance and depart from the plain sense of the word of God. It decided that, though not desirable or scriptural, due to the weakness of some, i.e. whites, it was permissible to hold separate services for whites and blacks. Its resolution read, the Synod considers it desirable and scriptural that our membership from the heathen be received and absorbed into our existing congregations wherever possible. But where this measure, as a result of the weakness of some, impedes the furtherance of the cause of Christ among the heathen, the congregation from the heathen, already founded or still to be founded, shall enjoy its Christian privileges in a separate building or institution. So, this permitted separation was not allowed simply for racial reasons. Social pressures found an ally among missionary strategists, such as Andrew Murray. In line with much 19th century European Protestant missionary strategy, this separation was regarded as a way of facilitating mission work. The rationale was what today would be called inculturation. In the 19th century, influential German missiologists taught that the gospel should not be proclaimed to mankind in general, but to each nation and group in ways appropriate to their culture. But the cost here was high. It was a policy that divided the church along ethnic and cultural lines. Although mixed congregations continued to exist, what was meant in 1857 to be an exception became the rule. Separate parallel congregations were formed, leading eventually to separate mission or daughter churches. And I'm talking specifically about the Dutch Reformed group still. <coughs> so the first of these was Descending Kirk, the Mission Church, established in 1881 for coloured people. This was followed later by the uh, Dutch Reformed Church in Africa for blacks, Africans, and the Indian Reformed Church. So they had four different uh, mainstream uh, Dutch Reformed churches. 
The separate development within the DRC, reluctantly accepted by some, had enormous ramifications. While it facilitated the growth of indigenous congregations, it divided the church along racial lines in a way that was recognized even then as theologically unsound. Would the church not have been more faithful and thus eventually more relevant, Debrucey asked, if it had attempted to provide a bridge between people rather than serve as an instrument whereby social and racial differences were legitimized, contact reduced. However understandable from a cultural and evangelistic perspective, it seems to be an example of social pressure and pragmatism, custom and culture rather than theology and scripture, determining the life of the church. In any event, the missionary program of the DRC, as it developed during the next hundred years, followed custom and culture consistently, thus providing an ecclesiological blueprint for the nationalist policy of separate development. Thus, the separation of secular and mission churches had implications far beyond the ecclesiastical realm. Into this world came the British settlers, townspeople of artisan and working class, Victorians, proud to be part of an expanding empire, and, as I've said, mainly nonconformist and Methodist. Missionaries appeared from London, embodying English liberalism in religious form. As the English-speaking churches grew, educational institutions, very significant ones, began to be set up for blacks. In April 2002, Nelson Mandela came to Oxford to open the lecture theatre named after him at the Saeed Business School. And anyone who was present may recall how strongly he made the point of thanking British missionaries for their educational work, particularly for the Methodist high schools and Fort Hare University, which he himself attended. But for the Boers, as de Grouchy remarks, their struggle against imperialism and alien culture, liberalism, and interfering missionaries was about to begin, and it would not end until it had produced an Africana nationalism equal to the task of subduing the land and reshaping society. In contrast to the DRC, the other large churches, Methodist, Roman Catholic, Anglican, and so on, maintained the principle of multiracial unity. And with intensive missionary work, their black memberships grew rapidly. Synods and councils began to be visibly mixed, although until recently, cultural and geographical factors meant that most congregations were not very visibly mixed, with notable exceptions, particularly in cathedrals. The growing phenomenon of African independent churches, breaking away from the mainstream ones, also meant that large numbers of black Christians worshipped apart from whites. In 1948, the Africana National Party took power, beating the tired United Party of Jan Smuts in the whites-only election. Life for those in South Africa who hoped for a gradual liberalisation suddenly went into reverse. In every sphere of political and social life, the races began to be separated by law, and this was new. Mixed residential areas were destroyed. Soweto was founded 10 kilometers away from the center of Johannesburg. Black populations were removed there and to other places. Bantu education was brought in, designed to keep blacks in subservience. It was mandatory, it was illegal to teach blacks any other kind of education, 
and it destroyed many of the mission schools, most of which closed rather than teach the new syllabus. Catholic schools did try to struggle through and to supplement what they were teaching. The book that alerted the world to what was happening was Trevor Huddleston's Naught for Your Comfort, his passionate account of the total wrecking in 1955 of the thriving black and mixed community of Sapphiretown in Johannesburg. That's uh, a copy, there are many, many thousands. And the lives of Sapphiretown's 60,000 people. Huddleston was an Anglican priest and <coughs> monk, a graduate of Christ Church, and he had arrived to head the Mission Church of Christ the King Sophia Town in 1943. He was a profound influence on one of his teenage <coughs> members of his congregation, whose name was Desmond Tutu, who was later trained for the priesthood by that same community of monks. Huddleston took the title of his book from a poem by G.K. Chesterton. I tell you naught for your comfort, yea, naught for your desire, but that the night grows darker yet, and the sea rises higher. And so it was. In 1960, after the shooting of 69 unarmed protesters at Sharpville, Nelson Mandela founded NK and Controversies Wing, the armed wing of the ANC, and began a sabotage campaign against things, not people. As a Christian, he did this on the just war principle of using violence only as the last resort. After all, the ANC had been trying since 1912. When his bona fides as a Christian were questioned in the early 1980s by a visitor to him in prison, he responded that I was a Christian and had always been a Christian. Even Christ, when he was left with no alternative, used force to expel the money lenders from the temple. He was not a man of violence, but had no choice but to use force against evil. And that's in Mandela's biography, Long Walk to Freedom. Mandela and others were caught, tried, and sentenced to life imprisonment as terrorists. His erstwhile legal partner, as a lawyer, the Anglican Oliver Tambo, went out of the country to lead the ANC in exile. The ANC and other movements were banned. The Suppression of Communism Act of 1950 virtually forbade all action against the state. And the Terrorism Act of 1967 allowed indefinite detention for a wide range of offences. South Africa became a police state, developing a ruthlessly efficient and eventually very cruel secret security police. Throughout the 1970s and early 1980s, the government enforced its policy of separate development by attempting to shunt its entire black African population into ten small autonomous tribal states, the so-called homelands policy. Only one small but determined and significant white opposition party, the Progressive Party, survived. Civil society institutions, therefore, became a prominent locus of opposition. And prominent among these was the South African Council of Churches, composed largely of the English-speaking churches with the RC as <coughs> an observer member, Catholics as an observer member. It also maintained links with many of the African independent churches. Desmond Tutu, by then already a bishop, was its general secretary from 1978 to 85. The Dutch Reformed Church had opted out of it, or more precisely out of its immediate predecessor, and out of the World Council of Churches, 
After a consultation of the churches with the World Council, called in response to the Sharpeville Massacre, and held in Cottesloe, Johannesburg, in December 1960. That consultation agreed that race should not be a basis for exclusion from congregations, and that blacks should be able to own land and have a say in how they were governed. The Prime Minister at the time, Hendrik Vervoort, the architect of apartheid, made sure that the Dutch Reformed delegation were unable to get even qualified agreement for its resolutions from their churches. In consequence, one of the Dutch Reformed representatives, Dr. Baez Nodir, who was moderator of the Dutch Reformed Synod in the Transvaal and a member of the inner group, the Afrikaner Bruderbond, in a group of Afrikaner society, parted company with the White Dutch Reformed Church and founded the Christian Institute of Southern Africa. Bayers, a delightful and saintly man, became one of the heroes of the struggle. The Christian Institute was active from 1963 until its banning, along with many other organisations, in October 1977. Together with the South African Council of Churches, it ran a programme of conscientisation among church members providing material for group study in the study project on Christianity in apartheid society. For churches under surveillance, it was said that in any group of ten in South Africa there would be one informer. Telephones were tapped, things were stuck on windows to listen in, all, all sorts of stuff. And where a white Christian population was itself somewhat divided and fearful. This kind of thing was not easy. From 1977 to 1984, Bayes himself was banned, a means of complete silencing and a form of house arrest. And he was only one of very many, mostly black, some whites. In terms of practical action at this time, the Council of Churches, with Canon Collins of St Paul's Cathedral in London, clandestinely organised support for hundreds of dependent families of prisoners and exiles. The success of this Defence and Aid Fund, which worked by linking each family individually to their um, benefactees, was quite extraordinary. Meanwhile, another Anglican order of missionary monks, the Cowley Fathers from Oxford, whose monastery was between the Cowley and Ifley Roads, ran the hostel in Cape Town in which relatives of Robin Island prisoners stayed when visiting the island. So, as violent conflict increased, both internally and regionally, acute theological debates arose among the whites on the question of violence <coughs> versus non-violence. Under what circumstances should a Christian join the army? Can an armed revolution be a just war? What criteria must it fulfil? Thomas Aquinas does explicitly allow for a just insurrection against an unjust ruler. He did not perhaps anticipate the kind of confusions that arose in the context of the Cold War, with communism both playing a part in the southern African turmoil, actually fighting Cuban soldiers and training the ANC and others. And it served as a bogey, therefore, for the apartheid government. The uprising, which the church leaders insisted time and again was born of the struggle for justice, 
was characterized by government propaganda as merely due to the expansion of atheist communism. Black people, the government maintained, would be perfectly happy if it were not for instigation, instigation of unrest by outsiders. South Africa was the bastion of Western Christian civilization and of democracy against the communist takeover of Southern Africa and its sea routes. Relations between the government and the churches were complicated by the World Council of Churches' support to the revelation movements through its programme to combat racism, which was launched in 1969 and still exists in some form. While the PCR expressly gave only humanitarian assistance, it was perceived by the South African government as pro-communist interference and support for violence. And when a leader like Desmond Tutu said he could understand why people had opted for violence, he was of course accused of supporting violence. Tutu himself chose to call for sanctions explicitly as a non-violent option. The government vilified him, removed his passport, and some white conservative Anglicans ceased to support the church financially, although in practice that had little effect. So young white Christian males were being faced with universal white conscription into the armed forces or police. Most joined up and tried to keep their heads down. Some families left the country. A few high-profile Christian conscientious objectors were jailed, protesting pacifism or selective pacifism. In fact, you could be a pacifist, but you couldn't be a selective pacifist. And this did produce a change in policy so that it became more possible to serve in non-combatant roles. Army chaplaincy became a contentious issue. Michael Lapsley, an Anglican priest who opted for an unofficial chaplaincy role to the other side, to the ANC in Lusaka, was consequently sent a parcel bomb in 1990, sent by the nasty tricks department of the South African secret police, and this blew off both of his hands. He survived to initiate programs on forgiveness and on recovery from physical and psychological trauma. These programs continue today, and he's still a major speaker on these topics. <coughs> black consciousness and black theology. In the late 1960s already, a new phenomenon was emerging in the form of black consciousness, a movement that spread rapidly among the young urban black intelligentsia. James Cone in America was one of the um, writers whom they read. They were unified across all other differences by their rejection of apartheid, awareness of its dehumanising power, and their determination to raise awareness of their own identity as blacks and their own power to bring about change. The churches were intimately involved in the growth of black <coughs> consciousness. Many young leaders were church members, including seminarians, and although black consciousness operated for a time through exclusive black caucusing, it took seriously the gospel of God's love for all, irrespective of race or colour. It also drew resources from African culture, seen not as opposed to Christian values, but as more Christian than European culture. The Lutheran theologian Manas Butelezi wrote, In a very real and special sense, this decade marks the beginning of a black renaissance. Never before now have black people been so successful in retrieving the image of their blackness 
from the dung heap of colour prejudice and a maze of statutes that make it difficult for the black man to be proud of his colour. Never before now have black people derived inspiration and strength, not in possessing military might, wealth or constitutional power, for all these are denied them, but in delving into the immeasurable resources of the liberating gospel and exploiting that which God has implanted in their souls. Black theology was a natural outcome of black consciousness. It was a contextual theology of liberation, allied also to African theology, which fed into it, which started in the USA in the 1960s and quickly became the major theme in South Africa among theological students and black Christian students and clergy generally in all the mainstream churches. The leader, Steve Biko, a committed Christian who was frequently helped and supported by white Christian friends, and who was famously killed under police interrogation in 1977, began his leadership career in the Black Student Christian Movement in the University of Natal Medical School. Insofar as black consciousness led to black caucusing, it could be a very uncomfortable bedfellow for white Christians. But for black people, that caucusing period, mainly in the 1970s, was a crucial stage of self-discovery and confidence building. As Tutu put it, for me, it is a crucial matter that black consciousness succeeds as a theological and evangelical factor because I believe fervently that no reconciliation is possible in South Africa except reconciliation between real persons. Black consciousness merely seeks to awaken the black person to a realisation of his worth as a child of God with the privileges and responsibilities that are the concomitants of that exalted status. Since Christ transcends racial division, black theology had also to remain self-critical and transcendent, not to become simply a tool of black nationalism, in the same way that some white theology had become the tool of white nationalism. Tutu was able to bring reconciliation to South Africa precisely because he was able to say to everyone, without any exception, the passionate message, God loves you. Affirmation, as we heard, before pointing out the mistakes. Tutu is a contemplative, and I remember his recounting in 1976, during the Soweto uprising, how he had found or been given in prayer the profound conviction that freedom is coming for all of us. Deep spiritual practice helps people through. the Kairos time. In 1985, partly influenced by what had been happening in black theology, an informal network of 151 theologians, ministers and lay people of all races and churches gathered in small groups and wrote and signed a statement known as the Kairos document. That's it, little, little booklet, the Kairos document a critique of apartheid state theology and a prophetic call to prophetic theology and action against the oppressor. Kairos in Greek conveys punctilia time, the time is now, it's come. It was a clarion call to get up, get going and take part in the push against the system. A couple of years later, change was really coming. Geopolitically, the Cold War was ending Intellectual doubts grew within the Africana establishment. 
financial and sporting sanctions were effective, the military costs of supporting apartheid were unsustainable, and the military leaders were telling the government there must be a political solution, and there was chaos in the townships, which the ANC aimed to make ungovernable with considerable success. From 1987, clandestine talks were held between the government and the ANC. A broad pro-democracy front emerged. White people were following black in losing their fear. In September 1989, after the killings of 20 protesters against the last whites-only election, Tutu came out of, yes, a night of prayer, to initiate a great protest march in Cape Town, which happened on the 13th of September. A flood of 30,000 people of all races marched from the cathedral to the Grand Parade, led by Tutu, the white mayor, Muslim leaders, political and business leaders, and diplomats. Against the advice of his security people, the president-elect, F.W. de Klerk, allowed the march. He said, the door is open to the new South Africa. You need not batter it down. And it was on the grand parade that Tutu announced to applause, Mr. de Klerk, please come here. We invite all the cabinet. Come and see what this country is going to become. This country is a rainbow country. You can come and see the new South Africa. In February 1990, Mandela was released and the liberation movements were unbanned. The transition. But South Africa was far too divided and disturbed for this to lead magically to constitutional talks and peace. There was no effective administration or policing of crime in black areas. Townspeople hated and despised the police, the erstwhile enforcers of the apartheid system. A low-grade civil war between the ANC uh, and traditionalist Zulus, the Encarta Party, had been raging in KwaZulu, Natal, and was now spiralling up and spreading to the Johannesburg townships. In other words, there was now black political jockeying for position. <coughs> the homelands remained in place. The National Party, ANC and Encarta profoundly mistrusted each other. Agreements between the government and ANC were not kept. Some secret security police continued to operate completely out of control. Negotiations did not start. Violence increased. South Africa got into a dangerous limbo. Meanwhile, the churches had made a significant advance. In October 1990, at its synod in Bloemfontein, the DRC admitted that apartheid was a sin, though it was possible to interpret the statement as saying it was not inherently sinful, but had been applied sinfully. In November 1990 at Rustenburg, happened to be at Rustenburg because they found a hotel there that would take the whole group, the representatives of all the churches in South Africa met for the first time since Cottesloe, 30 years earlier. The conference was jointly chaired by the Black Secretary General of the SACC, Frank Chikani, and a prominent DRC layman, the physicist, he was a scientist, Professor, he is a scientist, Professor Lowe Alberts, he worked on magnetism, mining technology, and wrote on science and Christianity. And there in Rustenburg, Professor Willy Jonker of Stellenbosch University spoke for the Dutch Reformed delegation. The fact is that we live in two different worlds. In the past, many white Christians were blinded by their ideological misconceptions about the utopia of peace and stability that allegedly would have resulted from apartheid. 
and those who were ideologically less committed were simply not in a position to realise what was really happening in the black community. Even the voices of those who cried out to make them aware of the facts were often silenced in one way or another. Fortunately, the situation did not remain static. During the last decade, the DRC has been constantly wrestling with the problem of its support for apartheid. It has ended up by making a decisive turnabout by condemning apartheid as a sin at, at its recent general synod. One should also not forget that there has always been a minority within the DRC that has resisted the general trend. That minority has now become a majority, at least at synodical level. The sincerity of the DRC will have to become visible in its deeds. Nevertheless, it is hoped that this conference will be a major step towards mutual trust and acceptance. In the final analysis, only the Holy Spirit can give us the confidence to forgive and accept one another. On the human level, the DRC can do little more than to acknowledge its guilt and ask for forgiveness and acceptance. Without that, mutual trust cannot be restored. We cannot just continue as if nothing had happened between us. The wounds that were inflicted by apartheid and racism are still there. The broken relation between the churches cannot be healed by synodical decisions alone. An experience of reconciliation is necessary to enable us to come to a united witness. I confess before you and before the Lord not only my own sin and guilt and my personal responsibility for the political, social, economical and structural wrongs that have been done to many of you, and the results of which you and your whole, whole and our whole country are suffering from, but vicariously, I dare also to do that in the name of the Dutch Reformed Church of which I am a member, and for the Afrikaans people as a whole. I have the liberty to do just that, because the DRC, at its latest synod, has declared apartheid a sin, and confessed its own guilt and negligence in not warning against it and distancing itself from it long ago. That was a famous confession made by Willy Jonker. He continued <coughs> discussing the tensions between the attitudes of reconciliation and attitudes of resistance, which still persisted, and the role of the church in politics in normal times and abnormal. And when Willy Jonker had finished, Archbishop Tutu responded. Professor Jonker made a statement that certainly touched me, and I think touched others of us, when he made a public confession and asked to be forgiven. I believe that I certainly stand under pressure of God's Holy Spirit to say that, as I said in my sermon at the opening worship, when that confession is made, then those of us who have been wronged must say, we forgive you, so that together we may move into the reconstruction of our land. That confession is not cheaply made, and the response is not cheaply given. So the confession made headlines, apartheid is a sin. And this coming together of the churches at Rustenburg enabled them to play a central role, <coughs> together with the business community, as the facilitators of political peace. A committee of 12 representatives from the churches and from business, which had also got itself organised to help in the transition, were able to bring all the political leaders together for the first time, and that happened in June of 1991. Remember, Mandela was released in February 1990. So in June 1991, all the political leaders and many other parties were brought together in one auditorium at Barlow Round in Johannesburg. 
and an agreement was made to formulate a common accord, a peace accord, to map the way forward. Over the next three months, the government, the ANC Alliance, Zulu and Carter Freedom Party, facilitated by the church and business leaders, negotiated the National Peace Accord. The Accord is a small booklet. That's the Peace Accord. It sets out the aim of a free, democratic, unitary South Africa and the means to get there in terms of codes of conduct for political parties and for the police, provisions for socio-economic reconstruction, the Commission of Inquiry into Political Violence and Intimidation, the Goldstone Commission, and uniquely, peace structures to implement the accord at every level. A national peace committee and secretariat, 11 regional peace committees each with secretariat, and as many local peace committees as proved necessary, and that was 263 in the end. The committees would include representatives of political parties, the security forces, religious bodies, business and community groups. All of these, extraordinarily, for the first time ever, were to work together to build relationships, to build trust, to resolve conflict, to prevent violence, to educate, inform, and spread a culture of peace. Church and business leaders were the most common facilitators and chairs throughout these structures. Just a handful of black church leaders were unable to make the switch from prophetic resistance to reconciliation and peacemaking, and remained deeply traumatized and suspicious of all contact with the government. But for most, for most church leaders and members, to serve on or alongside the peace structures presented an astonishing opportunity to heal the land. Violence did continue, but there would have been far more had it not been for the work that was done. The years 1991 to 94 were a roller coaster ride. We learned the skills of mediation on the run, trust and understanding were slowly built, marches and events were coordinated, the country could have come apart when Chris Harney, the great and communist black leader was, was assassinated at Easter, April 1993. It did not, partly because the ANC handled it very sensibly, but above all because they had the structure of the Witzwell Peace Secretariat and all the peace committees to organise and run the whole funeral. The peace committees offered for the first time a practical alternative to violence. <coughs> They did relief work, oriented people towards peace and reconstruction, and helped the security forces enormously to change their ways of operating. Many thousands of church members either sat on the committee or became involved as staff or trained volunteer peace monitors to monitor good. There were nearly 20,000 in the end, and as voluntary helpers. Millions simply wore the T-shirt. There was also a song about peace in our land. You didn't have the T-shirt, you could always have it. <laughs> <laughs> or your car might like one of these. So in 1993, there was an enormous uh, campaign to sell the idea of peace. And people rallied to it hugely. That virtually became the national flag for the time. Belief that peace was possible was, was put in people's hearts, even though there was still a bit of a roller coaster to go on. The Commission of Inquiry into Political Violence, part of the peace structures, succeeded in uncovering the actions of the third force, that's the out-of-control security people, 
and it was headed by the Jewish judge, Richard Goldstone. And among several hundred peace monitors whom I trained were the chief rabbi of South Africa and his wife. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The signing of the accord also opened the way for political parties to start constitutional talks. And the talks agreed, and this is important, that there would not be a Nuremberg trial. Otherwise, those talks could not have succeeded. It was agreed that there would be instead a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Christian and African tradition conspired together to make this the chosen path in South Africa, the right path for this society. I don't know what would have happened if it had been Nuremberg, but I'm pretty sure that the talks would have stalled and there would have been a civil war. The TRC began its work in April 1996, two years after the election, under the joint chairmanship of Desmond Tutu and Alex Borain, a Methodist minister turned politician. The TRC had a limited budget. Churches lent their plant. Many of hearings were in churches or church halls helped to bring witnesses to testify to their experiences of torture, murder, and the disappearance of relatives, and exercised a ministry to them. <coughs> the TRC's aim was to uncover the truth about killing, abduction, torture, and severe ill treatment and treatment by any party between 1960 and 1994. It could recommend amnesty to freedom from either criminal or civil uh, prosecution, where the commissioners believed truth had been sufficiently told, and it could form forward recommendations to the government, not only about amnesty, but also for reparation and restitution for the victims. And that is one area where things fell down, because there simply was not funding or the will to do proper reparation and restitution. It also went much further towards reconciliation and healing in its hearings, in that victims frequently said they wanted to forgive, they just needed to know who to forgive. Some perpetrators also came not only to confess, but also to say they were sorry. Tutu and other commissioners did not demand either an apology or forgiveness, but the ethos of the hearings and the Christian background of virtually everyone involved were such as to facilitate and support the process of forgiveness and reconciliation. It was a very effective educational process. For nearly two years, pretty well everyone tuned in on Sunday evenings to the summary um, one-hour-long programme on that week's hearings, and many of them were broadcast live. One could say much more, but here are a couple of points in closing. First, from John de Grouchy's book, written in 1979, when the night was at its darkest. His final part is entitled The Kingdom of God in South Africa, and here he argues <coughs> why apartheid was fundamentally unchristian. A balanced theology, he states, holds three aspects of the kingdom together. First, the belief that God is sovereign over all pe history, all peoples. Apartheid distorted this truth in that its roots lay in the ideological conviction that the Afrikaners were a chosen race of God. Second, all people are equally in need of God's individual redemptive grace in their lives. Yes, but individual piety descends into pseudo-piety, if it is divorced from the third aspect, which is that the inner life must inform the outer. The biblical message of the kingdom of God has political implications for society. It issues in the social gospel of equal justice for all, in God's just peace, God's shalom. And that is now in the present, not just at the end of time. Apartheid lent itself to pseudo-piety, an individualistic piety divorced from the building of the kingdom of God in the present. 
looking at the realities of the present. And so finally from Desmond Tutu, remembering how as a child he saw Afrikaners going to church in vast numbers, he writes, our people were often left perplexed by this remarkable fact, that those who treated them so abominably were not heathen, but claimed to be fellow Christians who read the same Bible. Thus the proponents of apartheid really had no excuse for their peculiar doctrine. The Bible they and we both read is quite categorical. What endows human beings, every human being without exception, with infinite worth, is not this or that biological or any other external attribute. No, it is the fact that each one of us has been created in the image of God. This is something intrinsic. It comes, as it were, with the package. <coughs> it means that each one of us is a God carrier, God's viceroy, God's representative. This is why treating anybody as if they were less than this is virtually blasphemous. It is like spitting in the face of God. That is what filled some of us with such a passionate commitment to fight for justice and freedom. We were inspired not by political motives, but by our biblical faith. The Bible turned out to be the most subversive book imaginable in a situation of injustice and oppression. So there are plenty of causes in South Africa today that call for response. And now as in the past, the work of the churches alongside any other religious bodies depends as before on two vital factors. Good theological scholarship. It's been well said that if you don't have good theology, what you get is not no theology, but bad theology. Good theological scholarship, so that churches are faithful to the gospel and prophetic within the real historical context. And authentic spirituality, which enables persons and communities to turn away from what is narrow, selfish and destructive, and to grow in truth and integrity, in courage and determination, in compassion and love. And with these things, peace can be built. Good. Well, we've got a few moments for questions. Um, you, you did touch on one thing that I, I, I don't know how important this was, but uh, certainly the internal situation in South Africa got very caught up with the Cold War. And I remember in the early 1990s, a member of the ANC telling me of the effect on the ANC of the sudden drying up of East German money in late 18, 1989 with the fall of the German uh, of the Berlin Wall. I was rather surprised about that, but it just shows. And of course, on the other side, the South African government was able to use communism sometimes as a bogeyman as well, but there were obviously real threats there as well. And, and so, so that made it all more complicated, didn't it? Well, the ANC alliance is the ANC, the South African Communist Party, yes. and the unions. Yes. Uh, the Sarti, in particular, the Union. Uh, yes, the Communist Party um, was welcomed as a partner uh, <coughs> in the twenties uh, and thirties. It was an ally of, of the, uh, the pro-democracy movement, and it continued to be so. Mm. Um, two prominent members, Joe Slovo, um, member of a Lithuanian Jewish family, who became a communist in, in South Africa. I mean, he was born in South Africa. Um, he was white, obviously. And uh, Chris Harney, whom I mentioned, who was assassinated. And um, some people were trained in, in Russia and Ukraine. Others were, I mean, I met someone who actually studied economics in Bulgaria, having to learn Bulgarian. Um, 
uh, and the only round Marxist economics, which now he says aren't actually much use to him. But um, you know, people have scholarships all over Eastern Europe. I've known people who have trained militarily in the Ukraine. And uh, a few went to China. That wasn't terribly helpful. <laughs> I can tell you a story about that, but it's too long. Mm. <laughs> right, are there any other uh, comments or questions about this? Uh, at the same time, yes. I would say that the ANC was supported broadly by churches across the world. Yes. And particularly well, it was itself an alliance, wasn't it? The Scandinavian yes. government and its, yes. its external bases yes. were in Osaka and London. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yes. I had an opportunity to visit South Africa in '91, and uh, that was a, a very interesting uh, experience. And in particular, my single strongest expression uh, it, it, recollection was the, of the great fear that was felt at that, at that time. I mean, a society recognizing that it had to be reconstructed mm. uh, and the risks of failure being so very high. Yeah. Um, this, was, this was in some ways an experience rooted in great difference and conflict, but also in the recognition of a shared plight. Um, the, the destruction of this would not be the, yeah. the, simply the victory of, of, uh, of any group. And I think yeah. that's yeah. Uh, in some ways why it's, it works so well as a religious occasion, because in, in effect, this, the, the need for it to be victorious over the other side was commonly understood as less important than the need to ensure common survival. Together, yeah, yes, that's right. We, uh, on the peace committees, one saw this extraordinary thing of people who had been torn apart by complete mistrust and, in some cases, you know, hatred. The other side can only be evil and won't change. And yet, coming to sit down together and to say, okay, we've got a problem, how do we solve it together? And to begin to, to understand where the other was coming from and, and to get, get away from the past and into the future. It was, a, it was an extraordinary time. Yeah. Yes. I, I like the last quotation that's from Tutu that is, the Bible is what can be the most subversive text in unjust situations. But I think perhaps the more important question is whether the Bible is or can be or should be a good text to establish a stable and just political order. Any thoughts on that? It, can, it certainly can and has fed into the establishment of such a thing. Um, obviously, people can pick and miss. That's why I'm talking about good theology, which looks at the whole tradition of Christian theology and looks at the real situation and uh, and tries not to be oppressive. <laughs> but should it be in the 21st century? Sorry? Should it be in the 21st century? Should the Bible play a role in the public country of the world? Why not? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Tony? Uh, just a, a brief thing on the peace and uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, with your question, um, I think some critics uh, of the process, certainly external critics, uh, people I know, mm. you know, philosophers I know in the US, mm. um, said that it was excessively influenced by religious uh, outlooks, particularly Christian, but also uh, 
some of the uh, South African indigenous uh, attitudes as well. Uh, and that, uh, but as it were, um, it should have really been neutral justice that, uh, that was the uh, motivator of whatever was done about in the aftermath by way of legal things. And the move to the peace and reconciliation thing was a, a sort of intrusion into the pluralist democratic idea, um, secular idea, uh, by, um, by these uh, beliefs in uh, reconciliation and peace and, uh, and so on, so which were, you know, uh, sort of super, super arbitrary uh, uh, ideas, you know. Uh, and um, I think there are various answers to this, but I was just wondering what, what you thought of this. Because uh, cause there were some people inside the country too who thought that justice was what they wanted, not, not all this, uh, you know, mushy talk to each other and being friendly yeah. and forgiving. Yes, the um, family of Steve Baker didn't want to yes. accept um, the amnesty yeah. recommendations and tried to get the whole thing declared unconstitutional. But they were people who thought like that, I think, accepted that this was the process, the one process that was going to work in South Africa. Mm -hmm. I think people from outside don't understand what South Africa is like um, and how it can operate. Um, if there had been agreement to have a Nuremberg-type trial at the end of 1993, there was a real possibility at that time <coughs> that there would be a civil war with the... Um, the homelands, the, uh, the conservative homeland leaders, the Encarta uh, Freedom Party, and a lot of conservative whites, possibly under Constantin who <coughs> sensibly steered things in another direction, but, but had to be given the means to do so. And there could have been a civil war. I mean, this is the South African roller coaster. Yeah. You're up, and then wow, you're down. Yeah. So the um, sort of merging of powerful religious and pragmatic uh, Absolutely, sort of yes. Mm. Yes, and into what was the workable path. Mm. And it was very impressive. And it gave, as I said, a, a, an educational um, program for the whole country, particularly, obviously, for whites who were saying time and time again, now we understand. We didn't know what was happening. Yes. Do you think that the that the church and leftists have been discover or rediscover any kind of moral backbone? And at the moment we have, uh, well, I'm partly there in a sense, the lapdogs of the ANC. Now the National Interfaith Leadership Council sits in Parliament basically, and there's a couple of cabinet ministers on it, and we never hear from the church. When it, so I mean, Zuba says that the ANC will rule till Jesus comes and that the uh, opposition party in the Western called opposition party is the devil and you must vote for Jesus. They, they say this sort of thing all the time and the churches never speak a word in protest. It's, it's always people like me on the anti-theist side who speak out against these things. The churches are silent. There is a new Kairos movement. Um, they made a statement to the ANC in its um, centenary year this year. It is a little bit deferential. Um, and I know that there are people within the churches who would like to hear a louder voice. Mm. Um, and you know, the, uh, the ANC is now showing signs of being, having been in power for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think it's lunchtime, so we better draw that to a close. So thank you very much indeed. That was most important.